Welcome to Sitting Askew. This is where we discuss news from Armenia, Azerbaijan, Turkey, and the wider region from an honest, critical, and historically comprehensive perspective. We challenge issues that are ignored, abused, and manipulated by nationalist narratives. This is the place where we say, Let's sit askew, speak straight. Eğri oturalım, düzgün konuşalım. Ari tsurunastank, duzhosank. Gelin ey oturaq, düz danışaq. Thank you, friends, for joining me as we sit askew. I know it's been a while. I've been taking a little bit of a break, doing a bit of traveling, kind of stretching my wings and collecting my thoughts. I wanted to do this episode a little bit sooner as the uh, elections took place in Armenia, but we didn't get a chance at the time. So this was the main focus of this episode. Um, in my conversation with my friend Moses, we kind of drift to other topics, uh, including the diaspora, Turkey, and Russia, all of whom do play important roles in Armenia and the Armenian elections. Just as a little bit of news, I do plan on doing an entire series on the Armenian diaspora coming up. A lot awaits. So let's begin. Today's podcast, our topic is going to be about the Armenian elections. Now that they're over, we can kind of discuss them in hindsight. And joining me today is my friend. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi. Uh, hi, Arthur John. Uh, thanks for the introduction. My name is Moses. And Ar- Arthur and I go way back. Uh, we're both, we write prolifically on Quora together. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, you know arthur has very interesting opinions and and so do i and we like to discuss sometimes and i think the stuff that we're discussing is 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 perfect material for a podcast right well said well said <laughs> and and quora is probably responsible for this podcast it kind of spiraled out of my writing there um there's clearly there clearly are things that need to be said and both you and i are think are people that are not afraid to say those things we speak honestly we speak humanely i think we treat people as individuals and not you know monolithic uh entities representing an entire nation just very yeah. basic stuff that you know it sounds funny that but there's a lot of people who just can't talk to another person without treating them as responsible for everything that you know anyone in their nation ever did oh yeah an easy example is when uh, Turks have this resentment towards the Armenian diaspora and they start to differentiate between the diaspora and uh, Armenians in Armenia saying that, oh, Armenians in Armenia are cool, but the Armenian diaspora, they're all Dashnaks. So I'm, I'm so glad say- you said this. this. You don't understand how great of a segue this is in a way because coming after probably this podcast or if not right after soon, I plan to do a series on misconceptions on the diaspora after a suggestion from a friend, a mutual friend, by the way. Um, and oh, nice. So yes, that will be one of the prime topics. Just misconceptions, misunderstanding of what the Armenian diaspora is, what constructs it, you know, what what elements are within it, and one of them is exactly what you mentioned that. Mis- and we are actually. I mean, Armenian people as a whole, we feed into those misconceptions too, because sure. 
I, I think one, one of the most glaring problems for Armenians right now is that we need stronger bridges between diaspora and home, homeland Armenia. We need better bridges. And it's actually a fact that maybe the one or two lobbying organizations that have the most power, that have the most money, that are able to put forth candidates and actually support American candidates like Adam Schiff and become entrenched into the, into the, uh, into the whole institution of American politics. Those couple of organizations that we have are not reflective of 80 or 90% of the Armenian diaspora. They're reflective of a very fringe opinion, which maybe 10% of diasporans have, uh, but they're not reflective of everybody at all. And so maybe there's a dysfunction in the diaspora. We're not doing a good job of articulating our voices, of representing what it is. And then also we need to do a better job of, of, of you know, having our hand on the pulse of Armenia and you know, what, what the people there need. How would the diaspora that is not a, uh, that, that are not citizens of the uh, Republic of Armenia, but clearly clearly in line with some of the mentalities and um, projects of Kocharyan, how would that diaspora have any influence in Armenia? They're not even citizens. They don't even get to participate in the elections. How do you think that happens? I think, uh, <clears throat> I think it's um, money. and uh, Well, I mean, you, you have to consider that 80% of our population is in the diaspora. And only about 20% of Armenians in the world are actually in Armenia. So we have to we have to be a little bit specific here. What do we mean by our population? Because we have a number of populations. If we're talking about everybody with Armenian ethnicity, that's a huge uh -huh. group. Um, when we're talking about the elections, unfortunately, although there's people who speak of it, have opinions about it, get involved with it, when we speak of the elections, they specifically involves citizens of the Republic of Armenia, those Armenians. Armenians who are yeah. Armenians not just because of their ethnic identity, but also because of their civic identity. Um, mm -hmm. So when you when you say that, who specifically do you mean? By the diaspora? Okay. No, um, no, I mean... Not the diaspora. You you said um, we. You, you spoke of a, of a we, of an hour. Oh, the, the Armenian nation. Uh, oh, the, so it's including everybody the ethnicity yeah so my question my question would remain so if we're speaking of everybody right 80 percent. let's let's go with your figure 80 percent of the armenian nation who is not uh in armenia or an armenian citizen i don't have the exact you know numbers in front of me at the moment but let's assume this how are these people influencing the Armenian elections. Yes, they go on social media and make all kinds of comments. Yes, they speak among friends very loudly and passionately. But how does it affect the electorate in Armenia? How does someone casting their ballot in Armenia get affected by these people? Well, I mean, there's a lot of things that the electorate is affected by, including media, social media, I mean, Pashinyan would never have gotten elected without social media. 
mean, I agree. He, yeah, he, not not only that, but he used it himself very effectively to organize his initial rallies, to constantly, you know, keep people on track as to what he's planning to do, what he's doing now. Even after being elected, he was always on mm-hmm. Facebook Live. He would always get made fun of, right? <laughs> being on Facebook Live, talking about I met with this leader, I did this, I did that. So no, I agree with you. He's a ver- he's very much a uh, a social media politician. Um, yeah. So you you're, it, you think social media is the medium through which the diaspora affects the elections in Armenia? Not only. I, I could say that there's probably a lot of channels, right? I mean, social media has to be one of them. Um, I mean, but the media itself, funding. Um, again, uh, our, we have a lobbyist political party. Uh, we have the ARF, the Armenian Revolutionary Federation who own a bunch of things like ANCA, High Todd, all of those things are as, as part of that, that umbrella, correct? And actually half of our churches are also under their umbrella. Um, one, of, uh, one of the two Catholicuses is, is part of that po- political party, arguably, right? And <clears throat> they have a huge impact on Armenian politics. I mean, there's no denying how much uh, impact uh, the Dashnak Sakan party has had, and they've managed to keep themselves relevant. Again, like uh, we were talking in that diaspora conversation about how like, all right, so they don't re- represent most of diasporan points of view, um, but they're the only organized group. They're very well organized. So I, right? I don't know the exact details, but just from what I have read, although there is an Armenian Revolutionary Federation in Armenian politics, in the politics of the Republic of Armenia, there is a Dashnak party, right? Dashnak Tutsin party. It in many ways is different. It in many ways acts sort of independently than everything that you described, um, that systematic, more traditional Dashnak Tutsin in the diaspora. Correct me if I'm wrong there. Do you see it as an exact replica and extension of Dashnak Tsutsun and those institutions abroad in the diaspora? Or do you recognize that there's something different about uh, what the Dashnak Tsutsun is in terms of the political party in the Republic of Armenia? Yeah, um, they, it actually is very different. Actually, okay. there's a lot of tension between uh, the diaspora's Dashnak Tsutsun and the Dashnak, okay. the, the actual so you, Dashnak Tsakan party in Armenia. You know much more than I do about that topic. Would you elaborate a little more, please? Um, I, I actually don't know if I know a lot more. I mean, okay. but I've, I've heard that. There, <laughs> Maybe there I've even heard it was... from you. You know, I, I, I know I've heard it somewhere. Maybe it was you. I don't remember. But was it, like a couple of months ago, one of my friends who is Dashnak Sakan and uh, was telling me that the party is imploding. I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, you know, like the Armenian Dashnak Sakans are on a completely different course than the, than the U.S. Dashnak Sakans. And uh, it's, it's, it's a big thing. And it's always been that way, actually, you know, ever since like. 1992 or the you know the early days of Armenian politics there is a political party out there under the name of Dashnak Tsutsun in Armenia that participates as one of the 27 other par- political parties um but it's not exactly the same party as as it is yeah and at it's one time exa- yeah. it held seats in parliament it had held seats before Pashinyan came to power and um, it lost all of those seats after Pashinyan's so-called Velvet Revolution. Yeah. 
and so you you do think it is different, but you're saying your friend believes it is imploding. Um. Yeah. I don't know how it's imploding. If there's some kind of inner struggle, I don't know about. I don't know. Um, they did, as I said, in 2018, they did lose all of their seats in parliament. So they became uh, an opposition party, a powerless opposition party. As an opposition party, they were voiceless. No one was paying any attention to them at all. They got they got associated with all the, the corrupt politicians of the Republican Party. They were associated with the oligarchs and all those people and the, the Kocharyan types and the Serge Sarkisian types and all those people. They were associated with all those. Um, however, however, I, I noticed that after the war, it was the Dashnak Tutsun party as exists in the Republic of Armenia that was one of the primary engines of the anti-Pashinyan protests on the streets of Yerevan. Do you agree with that? Did you see that as well? The, yeah, they, they kind of spearheaded the anti-Pashinyan thing. Yeah, that's that's what I saw. Their well, leaders, the seventeen, the seventeen political parties, including them, with the Vazgen Mamkian as the as their candidate, right in the very correct, beginning. correct. And they were the most vocal. They were the most out in front, you know, of these protests and rallies. I kept seeing these these people that I knew very little about from abroad. You know, I didn't know who these people were in in, in the, the politics of Armenia, but. You know, once researching them, they were all members of the Dashnak party of, of Armenia. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah. I don't think they're imploding. What I'm saying is I don't think they're imploding. I don't think they've lost whatever influence or power they have. Because I saw it very recently manifest in the protests against Pashinyan after the war. Yeah, yeah. And it's 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 interesting. It's interesting how that carried over and and, and led to Kocharyan's candidacy. I think um, it's so Kocharyan it's, it's, has always been friendly to the Dashnaksitsin, right? He's he was yeah. always kind of seen as one of us by them, right? One of our guys. And this, if I can go back a little bit, this specifically is because he uh, allowed the Dashnak party to return to Armenia after Levanter Pedrosian had forbid them from participating in the politics of Armenia. Yeah, Levanter Petrosian disbanded, right? Correct, uh, correct. Yeah, yeah, he expelled them. He just outlawed their participation in Armenian politics. Kocharyan reintroduced them, allowed them to come back in or whatever. Um, and I'm sure they're very grateful for that ever since. But how deep does that go? Because I've always wondered, why didn't why didn't Kocharyan run as a Dashnak candidate? I've always wondered that. He, he never ran as uh, associated with any political party. He didn't uh, call himself a Dashnak, even with those warm, you know, uh, relations between them. Because, uh, yeah, he doesn't want to pigeonhole himself and, and uh, he knows he has their support anyways, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. It's, and I guess it's very important to have the Dashnak support. Um, if you're running for president or prime minister, I guess, nowadays of Armenia. It's very important to get their support. That means you have the support of the strongest arm, uh, strongest diasporan institution. Oh, I'm, I'm very there. glad you said diasporan. Because when you're saying this, I'm thinking, 
what does that mean in Armenia? That support, what does that get you in Armenia? It doesn't get you much in Armenia itself. It gets you very little there because uh, to the common you know, citizen uh, in Armenia, the Dashnaks are just like this, you know, has been a party from a hundred years ago that they often read about in, in history books or whatever. They're nothing serious or, you know, they're, they're seen as radicals and they're seen as um, people who just uh, are just gung-ho, zealous, you know. I don't think they're taken very seriously in Armenia. Um, and so I don't know what that support gets you. Maybe if you, as you mentioned, all, all the resources and support and influence in the diaspora gets you something. And the only thing I can think of is money. Maybe they get money somehow by being a force in Armenia. But, but otherwise, when, when you ask a common citizen of Armenia what they feel about the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, they either have nothing to say or they have something negative to say. There's no one that says... Oh, I, I look up to them. They were, you know, beacons of independence in our first republic, which is an inter interpretation you can have. But I don't see many people having that interpretation. I don't see many people seeing that party as that. Yeah, yeah. In fact, not just in Armenia, but in the diaspora, if you ask most people, what do you think about the ARF or the Dashnak Tsuchun? Yeah. Uh, that's the reaction that you're going to get. You're going to be like, oh, you know, I love that they're very high in Nasir, but... But, and then dot, dot, dot. So Haida Nasser, for those who don't speak Armenian, it means um, lover of homeland, lover of, you know, the Armenian homeland. So, yeah, they, at least they like to think of themselves as lovers of the homeland, right? Patriots, if we, if you will. Um, they like to think of themselves as not only patriots, but the only patriots. <laughs> Everyone else is not as patriotic as they are. Um so they like to they like to define themselves in those terms, but uh, but again, you you always want to kind of talk about their status in the diaspora, and I'm I keep highlighting that disconnect between the Armenian elections and their status in the diaspora. I just don't see they can be connected, especially especially in an uh, Armenia where. A, a citizen can't even vote uh, from abroad, let alone, you know, anyone else um, who isn't a citizen. So voting from abroad is not an option when it comes to Armenia. How does all of this influence and power and whatever, the, the zeal in the diaspora affect what happens in the politics of Armenia? I'm still not seeing the connection. Yeah. That's a that's a really good that's a really good point, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and there is a, there is a huge disconnect. There is a huge disconnect. So uh, their zeal, their passion for Armenia might translate into stuff like not wanting to compromise any territory in Karabakh, mm. or not wanting to compromise on the dialogue about the genocide. About uh, setting that's, a, that's very well said. Very well said. I think if there is an influence, I'm very glad you said that. It's in the militarists of Armenia. It's in the um, 
the more radical wing, the, 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 the ones that support military uh, intervention in Azerbaijan and Gharabagh, uh, military action, you know, the ones that spur that on, continue to spur that on, believe that it's a just cause, and believe, honestly, it's, it's part of a bigger project of recreating the historic and ancient Armenian homeland. So maybe in those terms... The Dashnaks have been at the forefront. They have defined what that movement is. Some of the people that participated uh, in the first, at least, Gharabagh war uh, and effort were former Dashnaks. Some of them, you know, not all of them, not every single one of them, but some of them who came from abroad were Dashnaks from the diaspora. Um, do you agree there? Yes. And, and here's another interesting thing. It's um, and I didn't actually have uh, as much insight into this as I do now that I listen to some of these forums on Clubhouse, um, and they're mostly held by these Dashnats. But there's a strong Syrian and Beirut uh, Lebanon component to the Dashnat Sagan party who have very strong ties with, the, with, with Armenia. And they also kind of, we need to consider the Lebanese component. You know what I mean? Which is very strong. Um, they, they see themselves as the vanguards of, of Armenian Haire Nasiruch. And again, like does it, uh, the vanguards of, of zealous uh, national, nationalism. Yeah, that's very well said. Figures like Girard, Sefilian, and, you know, etc. Um, is Sefilian Dashnak Sakan, though? That's, that's what I was going to ask. <laughs> so you took the words out of my mouth. Yes. So he is not Dashnak Sakan, from what I know. I don't know if he participated in anything to do with the Dashnak party in Lebanon. I would imagine so, because so many of the cultural and social institutions in Lebanon and some other countries are tied to the, the, the Dashnak party. They are run by the Dashnak party. So I would be surprised to to hear that he didn't at some point, you know, even myself, I attended Cub Scouts, you know, hosted by the Dashnaks. Um, you just can't get around it. They just run so much that is part of the social fabric of Armenian life and diaspora. Um, exactly. So. And, and yeah, and it just happens to be that um, if you're, if, if one of your kids goes to an Armenian private school, then chances are 50, 50, they're going to a Dashnak Sakan school. Yeah. Yeah. And if yeah. you go to an Armenian apostolic church, chances are 50, 50, you're going to a Dashnak Sakan institution. Yeah. But they're very, they did a really good job, historically speaking, of building their institution and making it entrenched in the diaspora. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and, unrivaled. And, and it's as unrivaled. you said, uh, them having close to, if not fifty percent of the churches under their influence, by by way of making them adhere to the the Cilician Catholicos instead of the Hmiadzine one, um, having that sort of church power is also a major influence. Um, uh, again, in, obviously in the diaspora, because they don't have any of those churches in the Republic of Armenia. Uh, but um, so I imagine in Lebanon, if Jirar Sefilian and figures like him, who do not call themselves Dashnak now, although they're you know they're in Armenia and they're very Dashnak-like, and they they run a lot of the discourse in Armenia without calling themselves Dashnak, 
there must have been at some point, at least in their lives, some kind of influence from the Dashnak mentality and, and the Dashnak uh, way of thinking of Armenian issues and politics. Of course. Yeah. This is, it's, it's, it's crazy. Like if, if you want to compare it to Turkish politics, <clears throat> I would liken the Dashnak Sakans to MHP, MHP, right? But I would also liken them to um, the, to the, like the Gulanist movement, like the amount oh, of, the amount of head roads they've made, the amount of influence that they have within the diaspora. I mean, you have to think that prior to 2016, most of the, the, the Turkish diaspora organizations, not most of them, but a huge chunk of them were kind of operated by Hizmet. Very interesting comparison. I've never made that comparison. I often compare them to the Itihadists, the, uh -huh. the Committee of, of Union and po Progress that, you know, was responsible oh, yeah. they're, they're, they're for... They're a vestige of the Itihadists, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> in everything. Like, even their name is exactly the same. Itihadists just means unionists, which is what Dashnaks mean in, in Armenian. Yeah. It means unionists. Uh, Federalists, just, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. Or Federalists, Federalist. I think, is, is not as good of a term as, as unionists. The idea is that, that they're yeah. uniting under one leadership all these various smaller political movements, parties, and factions. Yeah. Um, and they set themselves up as the vanguard. And and they start, both of them, again, started off as, as reformists who eventually became nationalists and ultra-nationalists. Um, That's so. true. And they uh, and actually, another like widely observed phenomenon in political science, but whenever you have the ruling uh, class that is considered, quote-unquote, the dominant discourse, um, when, 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 the, when there's a dominant discourse by a ruling class, whatever discourse that they have is usually mimicked by the opposing class as well when there's class conflict. You understand? So like if you have you know, Ottoman society where you have the CUP, the Committee for Union and Progress, the Itihadists in, in Ottoman society, then what you have by these like minorities who are also trying to, they start to copy the rhetoric of that the, the uh, ruling class and their own rhetoric becomes kind of like uh, you take that you translate it in, in your way and you spit it back out kind of rinse and repeat you know <laughs> <laughs> just uh, you know what i'm saying but the rhetoric yeah. stay, stays the same yeah. it's interesting and that that actually kind of shows that the that this discourse itself is the, is dominant right the the, the rhetoric itself it shows it shows how how power structures are in that society just based on whatever is not questioned the whatever rhetoric is not questioned and how like yeah. we don't we don't question why is it that we need to take like a very strong nationalistic pan armenian approach to everything nobody questions that that we take that for granted right yeah yeah um let me drag our conversation back to the elections. Um, in terms of what you observed from the elections, what would you say were the highlights or, or, or key components you want to um, mention and talk about? Um, and I'll probably do the same. I'd like to kind of, well, we'll obviously have to talk about Pashinyan a lot because yes, he is the yes. central figure of those elections. Disclaimer that my views are 
are subject to change. Okay, so let's do our disclaimer but, now. So as we begin talking about uh, the Armenian elections, um, both you and I, we are we don't have completely firm positions in terms of whom we support or or why we support them. All you and I do, and this is what I appreciate with with what you and I do, we take the information, we take the positions, we take the facts as they come in, and we adjust whom we support in the election process accordingly. I think mm-hmm. we, we both are doing this. So at some points, though, in time, we were in differing opinions, right? Sometimes in our discussions, I ended up defending Pashinyan and you were challenging him. Other mm-hmm. times, you defended Pashinyan as I challenged him. Um, and and I don't know if it's the same for all the other candidates, but Pashinyan was the the main uh, figure that we were having some kind of a, a a contention over in terms of do we or do we not support this guy? And that's what the election really was, right? Do you support Pashinyan or do you not support Pashinyan? Because in all honesty, like what was the alternative? No one paid attention to any of the other candidates except for Robert Kocharyan. And why did they pay attention to him? Because he was the former president who still has some kind of um, influence and power within Armenia. Other uh, former presidents, I think Serge Sarkisian was also running, was he not? I know uh, for sure. No, no. Uh, was Vanetsian was running, and and uh, Serge Sarkisian put his support behind Vanetsian's party. Oh, I see. To, uh, I have honor. Oh, I um, see. I see. I see. Uh, Levon Terpedrosian was running, and no one paid attention to him whatsoever. <laughs> and actually, actually, one of my opinions is, if you're if you're anti Nicole, if you really wanted to get Pashinyan out of office, then you should have gone by. You know, when Levon Terpedrosian made that calling made that calling for all of the ex-former presidents. Let's form a coalition. Let's put forth a candidate that is going to be neither one of us. Let's put, put forward a good technocratic uh, candidate. And let's have him run against Pashinyan. But nobody, nobody, none of the former presidents paid attention to him, Serge yeah. or, or Kocharyan. Yeah. And I'm, I'm in complete agreement with you. If you had some kind of issue with the failures of Pashinyan, the only, what to me seems to be the only rational answer to that, the only rational response to that would be to support what was being offered by Terpetrosyan because he's the only one offering anything. (laughs) He's the only one offering anything that is opposed to the way Pashinyan ran his affairs, right? And, right? and the main focus had to be, the main focus had to be how he ran the affairs relating to the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, right? The way that Pashinyan ran them was an absolute disaster. I mean, I don't think it's very far-fetched. I, these days, tend to agree with anyone that speaks using this language when they say that Pashinyan walked us into that war. It was Pashinyan that took us to that war. Um, I don't think there could be doubt about that at this point. His rhetoric of trying to outflank the people on the right, that the Kocharyan types, right? Trying to yeah. outflank them by being even more to the right of them, mm-hmm. by declaring that 
Karabakh uh, is Armenia, full stop. Artsakh is Armenia, full stop. Um, by completely hijacking the negotiation process, by uh, taking actions and steps in the city of Shushi that many should have known would have been very offensive and, and, and glaring That's right. to the Azerbaijani side. That's right. And then he became a no compromise, uh, no, no millimeter, uh, yeah, yeah. He, he not, became, not he, one he, inch type. He became a not one inch type. Um, although he, he spoke kind of out of both sides of his mouth. He, he saw himself as the most revolutionary negotiator Armenia has ever had in terms of leadership. Right. When he met with Aliyev, he kept talking about, I am, you know, I am the first leader of Armenia that has actually suggested that any uh, any settlement we reach should also be satisfactory to the people of Azerbaijan. Like he believed that was a revolutionary statement that he cares about what the people of Azerbaijan think, uh, unlike other Armenian leaders. And somehow that was enough to quell and satisfy the negotiation process, it it, was, it proved to be nothing. It proved to be a symbolic uh, gesture only in his mind and, and, and flew nowhere at, at all. But what did fly was his other rhetoric about, you know, not one inch, it's all Armenia, case is settled, what negotiation process, it's, you know, it's our city, we'll dance and, and laugh and drink in it and... You know, and then there's nothing that is going to affect us. Kind of buying into some of the other uh, people who spoke about, you know, if if war begins, we will take more lands, right? He did. He he never yeah. himself used that kind of rhetoric, but it seemed like he was acting in accordance with others who did use that sort of rhetoric about mm -hmm. a, a new war actually benefiting Armenia and not Azerbaijan. That's right. Um, so, yes, anyway, there's many failures of Pashinyan in the Karabakh uh, War. And the only one that has offered anything uh, rational, anything uh, you know, tenable as a response to Pashinyan's positions in the conflict has been Ter Petrosyan. It's been Ter Petrosyan since the 90s. He remains so. His critiques of Pashinyan on this specific issue are spot on. You know, there's no one else criticizing exactly what needs to be criticized instead of using stupid juvenile language like he's a traitor, you know, he's a, a capitulant, right? He yeah. he just, he, he walked us into this war so he could lose it all along, you know, like this is stupid, stupid idiotic discussions that are being had by everyone else that Petrosian was not having those discussions what he was criticizing no. was yeah. you know the actual the actual heart of the conflict the actual guts of it yeah well and then there's also this strong undercurrent that we can't deny and that is uh, the pro-russian versus pro-west leanings of the people or the pro pro-european union pro-us pro-russian leanings and and the anti-Russian undercurrent has, has, has become very strong in Armenia. It's become very strong in Armenia. But so has the pro-Russian current is, is even suggesting breaking off and becoming a, a, part, a, a part of the Russian Federation. 
there's also that on Ukraine as well. Yeah, um, that's a very that's a very strong and and big talking point in Armenia in terms of where we stand with Russia, right? The either either you fully stand with Russia militarily or you stand with Russia even further to the extreme like you said even considering I've, I've heard this spoken by some considering the idea of joining the actual Russian Federation the opposite of this is either supporting the West right thinking the United States and Europe is your salvation your answer to Russia the one you should you know, hinge your military uh, security and, and future on instead of the, the Russian one, which in their eyes proved itself useless in defending Armenian positions and providing Armenia the necessary military capabilities to defend its positions. Mm -hmm. Or the third alternative, which is the idea that we should be completely uh, self-sufficient in our security we should not rely on Russia nor the West that we somehow magically have the know-how, capability, intelligence, resources, you know, uh, the brains to invent ourselves out of thin air, some kind of military industrial complex that can give us the most advanced weaponry we need. Drones, we can make them at home. We can make them better because we're Armenian after all, right? <laughs> this kind of idea that we could just, you know, home grow uh, a, an advanced military uh, industry and not need Russia nor anything to do with the West. These are the positions naive, that are being right? offered. Yeah, very naive. These are the positions I see. Every single one of these positions, by the way, is still quite militarist, is still quite war hawkish, is still quite vengeful. They're all trying to, like, you know, grind their axe and, 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 you know, prepare for a future war to regain the lost lands. No one is talking about peace settlement, again, except, you know, Levantel Pedrosian and those types. Um, no one is talking about peace. All these people are discussing is how do we regain our lands through war again? Do we through the it? Do, yeah, the revanches. Yes, the revanches. Do we do it through uh, continuing our uh, military alliance with Russia? Do we do it through creating a new alliance with the United States and Europe militarily? Or do we do it through not allying ourselves with any of these sides and creating a military industry ourselves? Um, whichever you take, it, it's whichever position you take, it's still with the idea of war, perpetual war, territorial issues, territorial conflicts. Um, there's no settlement to the Karabakh conflict in sight any of these positions in Armenia. So I had a I, I had a close friend, a very very good point. Very good point. I had a very close friend uh, make a really made a really strong argument recently. Um and he was saying that you know hey like there's a strong anti-Russian undercurrent but if you're that anti-Russian why not support be a supporter of Serge? Because actually, Serge, during his administration, 
was moving away from Russian influence and was slowly, without being so blatant about it, without saying that, you know, F you to Russia and sticking the middle finger to them, he was actually slowly kind of moving towards being more, you know, opening up more channels with the EU and with the United States and this and that. And if we, we were supposed to go with an anti-Russian current, why not in the direction that, the path that we were already going before the Pashinyan movement happened? I don't know if there's any evidence to support that. I Maybe I think your friend is trying to refer to the football diplomacy period. Is that how he sees evidence of Serge trying to move away from Russia and yes, into we the also camp of the West? We also signed treaties with the with European Union. There was also that that time when he went publicly and he said we have no allies, and that 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 was a shocking statement. But he he also pulled out of the uh, EU integration process and thrust Armenia into the Eurasian Union, spearheaded by Moscow. <laughs> so. I don't know if he, he was that and that Eurasian figure. that Eurasian Union, by the way, like does really does uh, um, hamper us a lot. There's a lot we can we cannot do because of them. Because of that Eurasian, uh, because yeah, of I mean, our we, yeah, we can't uh, we can't uh, discuss deeper integration into the EU economy uh, and and trade because of that 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 was uh, evident immediately right because armenia was in the process of uh, negotiating not you know not membership but at least some kind of a, a an integration that would have given benefits to trading with the eu uh, and all of those talks ceased once the eurasian union came into the conversation and armenia that's right uh, fully plunged itself into joining that there's an 800-pound gorilla in the room, and that gorilla is called Samuel Huntington. East versus West, the clash of civilizations, and what side are you on? Yeah. And Turkey's been trying to gra grapple with that for years, and I think Erdogan's been doing an interesting job of balancing that out. But we are right in the, in, in the center of that, and there's a huge Russian contingency, and then there's a huge pro-West contingency in Armenia. And... I've noticed that over the years, especially in the past 10 years, we've been like the, the Armenian people in Armenia have been moving away from being pro-Russian. And I, I would bet you that all of the Pashinyan supporters are among those who want to move away from being pro-Russian. There's I also people who are anti-Nicole. Honestly, I don't know if you, we can say that all of the Pashinyan supporters are anti-Russia. I don't feel comfortable saying something like that. Not anti-Russia, but like more like let's let's start seeking diplomatic routes. They're, okay, maybe we could say they're friendly to the West. The, the, the difference is, though, some want to be friendly to the West at the expense of Russia, whereas others want to be friendly to the to the West alongside being friendly to Russia. Well, the thing is that being friends with the West kind of puts you at odds with Russia suddenly because this the Eurasian uh, economic agreement, for example, and stuff, it, it, it demands it demands exclusivity. No, I know. So, I know technically it does, but I'm just saying in the Armenian mindset, there is no clash between the two. In the Armenian mindset, they're very complementary. 
sure. And yeah, or 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 Akiyama, if you listen to Ara Papian with uh, uh with his uh, Ara Papian with uh, uh, his Bever stuff, and 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 he always brings up the uh, example of Kyrgyzstan, which has both United States bases and Russian military bases within their country. Which personally, I don't think is very possible in Armenia because for a whole different set of reasons. Um, but he always brings that up as an example and says, "Why can't we be friends with both?" Yeah, and that... I think a lot of Armenians would love to think that too. Why can't we be friends with both? You you can't because the United States doesn't need you in the same way. Kyrgyzstan was only useful because of the war in Afghanistan. Armenia is not useful for any kind of regional war at the time for the United States. And even if it was useful, the United States would not be willing to invest in Armenia at the expense of what it has in Turkey. Um, it's just It's just not something that naturally aligns the United States and Armenia with each other. They, they, they are not aligned in the same way. And that's not to say, as, we, as we're saying, Armenians are not friendly to the United States, that the United States doesn't have, you know, various connections and sympathies and, and feelings towards Armenia. They do. But speaking practically, speaking realpolitik and, you know, the, the military industrial complex of the United States, Armenia figures very little into that. Somewhat, somewhat useful, you know, in terms of uh, ambitions against Iran, Armenia is useful. That's one of the reasons why Armenia has that giant embassy that it does. It's to uh, uh, associate with Iran. I'm using the word associate, but it's both to have diplomatic services to Iranians as well as, I'm sure, somehow on the back end, some kind of information, you know, exchange as well going on. Of course. Yeah. 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 Of course. Um, that's interesting, though. I'm... But here's the thing, though. When you talk about real politic, and uh, we're talking about uh, political realism, right? Uh, that was predominant in the 20th century. We're talking about Kissinger. Um, we're talking about um, the 1960s Cold War politics. We're talking about Samuel Huntington with the Clash of Civilizations. What becomes clear for me, for me personally, is that the polarities in the world are shifting. And the fault lines are shifting too. And so we don't have that traditional Cold War politics of Russia versus the United States, right? Now we have all these other multiple players. We, we're, we're no longer in a bipolar world, Cold War bipolar world. We're, we're in this world where there's multiple players. The European Union is its own power. Uh, China is its own power. You've got India versus Pakistan. You've got Turkey struggling to make its name out there as something too, as some kind of dominant. And we talked about this before. Are we going the Islamic route and becoming the leaders of the Islamic world? Or are we going the uh, Turanic route and becoming the leaders of all the Turanist countries? Or are we going the European route and trying to join the European Union? Right? Which, yeah, that project is pretty much done for. <laughs> As long as Erdogan's in power, but we don't know if the next JHP person who comes into power is going to be completely pro-Europe. We never know. We don't um, know if if a JHP power is gonna is a person is gonna come into power, but you know that's besides the point. Um, we don't know what will yeah. happen in Turkey. Is what I'm saying. Just speaking of what exists today and what see, what is most likely to exist, you know, from what we can project, 
the the status quo is going to be maintained in Turkey for a while. I would say, quite a while. Oh man, that sounds it. That sounds pretty sad. Um, that's the in terms of that's the situation e- in all everyone, of these authoritarian governments in Azerbaijan and Russia I too. Know. Actually, not everyone I know. Like, I think maybe a couple of my Turkish friends, and I, I respect them too, are pro Erdogan, pro AKP, and they offer me really good reasons why. Um, but I would say that most of, like, maybe 80% of, of my Turkish friends who are actually, like, PhD, well studied, well educated, whatever graduate, they all hate Erdogan. And you know right? what's happening with those people? They're leaving the country. So they're, yeah. not, they're not going to be voting anyone in to replace them. They're not going to be doing a revolution or a coup to replace them. They're just straight out leaving the country. Well, the fact that uh, Erdogan had to ally himself with MHP, like MHP, the the you know the Gray Wolves Party of Turkey, back in tw- like what was it, 2016, I think. The fact that he had to create a coalition with them so he could stay in power says a lot already. It means like already, like his supporters were starting to dwindle. In a way, I mean, it wasn't the you know, smooth, you know, overwhelming uh, majority that it used to be. But part of that has to do because um, the Islamist faction in Turkey split once he started his battle with the Gulenites. Yep, yep. His med movement. Yep. And, um, and, and the Gulenites, Gulenites themselves had a sufficient number of Grey Wolves, uh, Ergenkon people in their, in their, among their ranks, right? I don't know if they did. I, I wouldn't say they had gray wolves. No. It's not a it's not a Gulenist thing. It's not from what I know about them, that's not necessarily it's it's some it's contrary. some, but you know. Yeah. I I personally know of uh someone who's a political party. Um, um anyways. It's 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 not neither here nor there. But, but yeah, let's return no, I, to Armenia's politics. Yeah, if we can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to say that. So you're saying po- you're saying there's a shifting uh, po- po- polarity, right? Shifting polarity in the world. It's not a bipolar world anymore. You're saying, and how well, does it, that uh, figure into what Armenia's choice is? So exactly. you're saying the choice is no longer United States or Russia. What are our other choices? Obviously, I, I'm pretty sure you're going to mention China. Um, okay, yeah, yeah, of course. What, what else would of you course. say on that? Go and ahead. Europe, European Union or the Arab world? The European or, Union has usually been pretty, you know, lockstep with what the United States is trying to accomplish. More or less, yeah. More, more, or more, less, more, yeah. more or less. They. You, and, you, and you would want to call them the West. They the EU is the not really Western a counter values. counterbalance to the United States. It's not at all. They are to Russia. Yeah, a they're, bit. A bit. They're, but, they're scared of Russia. They want to work with Russia, but they're also scared of Russia. And they're reliant and, on Russia. For <laughs> oil, yeah. For, and and uh, gas. Heavily gas, on yeah. gas, yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so there's all these factors, right? I mean, we both we both acknowledged all of them. There's nothing is like squarely faced off black versus white. Like there's there's not that anymore. And in Armenia, you're in right in the right in the middle. You got to pick black versus white. I don't think that's going on right now. I mean, 
what's going on right now is like a bunch of nuances. I think the only thing Armenia. I think the only thing Armenia has to, as you said, pick one on, is its security. I think in everything else, Armenia doesn't have to pick one, and it hasn't picked one, right? Even even with economic policy, I don't think Armenia has to pick one. It's, well, no, no. If Armenia decides to become in the free trade zone with Europe rather than in the free trade zone with Russia, then it, it will also lose a lot of the Russian uh, security It would be benefits. so impractical for it to ever do so. The majority of its trade is conducted with Russia. I mean, even Georgia, who's tried to join the European Union for more than a decade, probably two already, um, mm-hmm. Even it has the bulk of its trade with Russia. So to say that somehow the South Caucasus is going to join the EU and and tie its economics to the EU, it's not realistic whatsoever. It's not happening now. It's not going to happen sometime in the future because the region is just too far removed from the core of Europe uh, and there isn't much that can be offered. The only country in the region that can offer anything to the core of Europe is Azerbaijan. It can offer oil and gas. There's nothing else that we can offer them. Well, okay. So one side is what we have to offer, uh, which economically speaking is a very important thing to consider. It's like what um, in management we would call a SWOT analysis, our strengths and weaknesses right our opportunities and uh, the other thing is um the other side of it though is also logistically speaking who are we close to right and logistically speaking we're a lot closer to europe than oh well we're slightly closer to europe than azerbaijan is we have contiguous borders with georgia and turkey just like azerbaijan does we're just as close right just as close to what Russia and Europe, we're well, not no, really. Azerbaijan not really. is actually logistically speaking, Azerbaijan is closer to Russia. Isn't that isn't that incredible? We don't have a contiguous border with Russia, but exactly. Azerbaijan does. That's what I was gonna say. With Dagestan, we're not in any way closer to Russia because we don't have a contiguous border. We're not even that close to Europe like Georgia is because Georgia having access to the Black Sea can very easily access Europe. We can't that same way. You know, we have to go through Georgia itself. Um, but again, I'm going to send you a little graphic made okay. by one of my, uh, um, I don't know where she copied and pasted. Uh, this is like the person who does the Armo news. I'll send it to your text message. Um, but it shows the percent, like how much trade we do with every country, and it's. It, I think it's good. It's it's revealing for our conversation. No, no, I I'd love to see. I've seen it before. So um, we actually do a lot more trade with Switzerland than than you would believe. I mean, we we do six hundred fifty four million with Russia. They're number one. But four hundred and sixty seven million with Switzerland, and then two hundred and eighty nine million with China. Isn't that this, isn't that something? Top products exported from Armenia. So you're talking about only exports. So you have to also consider right. imports as well. Um, yeah, but we're talking about exports. Well, let's go. With, let's go with exports. Fine. Uh, Russia number one. Switzerland. What are we sending to Switzerland? Oh, well, okay, okay. 
Probably Kocharyan's bank account. No, no, no. <laughs> yes. That, and I'm sure all the mining industry is based in Switzerland. So they're counting it as Switzerland. So these, you know, that's these resources. Almost, almost, almost yeah, the stuff. gold that's and, actually the, in, and the whatever, the, the copper. And stuff like that, but they have a, they're incorporated in Switzerland. I get it. I get exactly. it. Exactly. I'm assuming, again, I'm, I don't know facts to this effect, yeah. but I'm assuming that's what's going on here. I'm pretty sure it's not our wine we're sending to Switzerland. I mean, Iran ranks pretty low, and Georgia's not even on there on here. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, so they don't take any exports from us. Georgia doesn't take any exports from us. Very little. Uh, I I read pharmaceuticals, for example, is one thing that we do export to Georgia. I'm looking at the figures for Georgia, and. Mm-hmm. Actually, at by, this point, by the way, sh- yeah. shout out to my friend Marina Aslanian, who does the Armo News, um, who uh, I just I texted her while we were talking. I'm like, hey, do you still have that gra- infograph that you, you posted up like a couple of weeks ago about Armenian trade? And she's like, yes, here, here you go. <laughs> and, very quick. And very useful. Yeah. Well, Useful, I guess, but we we have to look at the sources, and I don't see them listing their sources here, so we don't know how accurate this is either. You know, it could be some some guy on the internet making this. Uh, okay, so do you think that some part, some major part of Pashinyan's constituency, reflects the desires of Armenians in Armenia, who still want to open up trade with Turkey even after all these events? Even after all these events is the key there. At this very moment, no. I don't think anyone in Armenia right now has a desire or a thought in that direction at all. Because of what happened with these events, as you said. Because of Turkey's full engagement against Armenia militarily in the recent war. Um, I don't think anyone is thinking in that direction. Now, I can't say it might not happen sometime in the future, maybe even a year or two from now, maybe it'll happen. But the the wounds are still too fresh to even think about that. In fact, I don't know if you heard a few days ago, they extended for another six months the ban on all Turkish goods mm-hmm. uh, in Armenia. Mm-hmm. So um, everyone's in that mood. If, if- honestly, honestly, I'm going to fully say it. Mm-hmm. I'm in that mood. <laughs> I'm in that mood. Um, I know it's not a rational yeah. mood. I mean, I like, come on, good ba- Bayraktar, uh, Bayraktar has killed our kids. Correct. In this war. Correct. In, a, in a very unbalanced, in a very unbalanced confrontation. I Correct. Mean, so, yeah. So, I mean, for me, like, for somebody who was very much, like, one year ago, two years ago, was very much pro. You and I both. Yeah. You and I both. Pro opening that border, normalizing relations, do what we got to do. We have to expand trade with Turkey. We got to have a normal border there with crossing. I wanted all of that. Just, I wanted all of that. And even but, putting my recent emotions aside, because 44 days neither you or I slept in, slept much. And I know that for a fact, because we were up at like 4 a.m. chatting with our... <laughs> yeah. Even our 44... Ordeal, and then whatever's happened ever since, where we're trying to like figure out some way, we still have harsh 
this bad taste in their mouths from Turkey, from Turkey, right? Who is trying to be a leader and really showing much lead on what they did. Um, but yeah, for me, just from a, if I put my emotions aside and from a realistic point of view, I don't think like our people are open up. Uh, is anywhere near opening up to Turkey, especially after the 44 day war. Yeah, I agree. That's just a fact. So even if I ignore my own personal emotions on this and just look at it Correct. with a cold heart and Correct. say, and still say so, that as an economist, I'm still saying that opening up borders with Turkey is the best thing to do as a realist. I know it's not going to happen. Not anytime, not, not for another five, 10 years, maybe. So speaking of the political future of Armenia, I think we're, you and I are both agreeing that if we have a multipolar world and Armenia has a choice between some of these poles, none of those poles at this very moment lead in the direction of Turkey, right? Turkey or NATO or whatever, or the West or anything that goes through Turkey with Turkey, it's not leading in that direction at all. And we could include but you in just, that you, th- things you, you like just, NATO. You just equated like, Turkey. You just equated Turkey. Yeah, you just equated Turkey though with NATO and the West, which which, which I think, which 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 I think is like a fallacy in my opinion because I think that there's tensions between Turkey and NATO, and then there's more tensions between Turkey and the West. There Don't is. There's no doubt about it. But I'm speaking logistically now, right? Just huh. logistically, Turkey is the the route for Armenia towards the West, right? Um, okay. Just okay. Spe- okay. again, physically, logistically, geographically, geographically, physically, yeah. geographically, right? So again, what or it what could is be, on or the it could pl- be, or it could be Georgia too, through some kind of access to the Black Sea. And if we had uh, we had ports, we had if we had ports in Buxley, you know you know why that doesn't work. You know why it doesn't work <laughs> because to get to Europe from Georgian ports, you load up your ship, you sail across the Black Sea, and then you gotta cross the Bosphorus, which is Turkey again, to get to the or no, to or get you to Europe, to, or you take it to Greece or Bulgaria, and they're already in the EU. Right? Yeah, Bulgaria, I guess. Yeah, Bulgaria, somewhat. I mean, Armenian, you know, oligarchs do invest quite heavily in Bulgaria, and I'm sure that's exactly the reason why. <laughs> it's it's across the Black Sea where they don't have to you know, cross the Straits or whatever. But um, yeah, so you you still think that's on in play? Then you think. Armenia expanding and strengthening ties with quote unquote the West. And by West, let's let's define that better. You and I probably mean EU and US, right? You you with me on yes. this? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Armenia expanding its ties with the EU slash the US is still on the table. You think this is still... I believe so. I believe that I believe that Biden's genocide recognition was a signal to Armenia that hey we're ready to like start talking with you guys 
So I think it was completely hot air. I think it was just useless hot air. It was a gesture. It was a gesture to appease Armenians in their, you know, in in their time of suffering uh, with the devastation of the war. If you remember, Armenians were actually quite pissed off because after Biden, you know, used the quote unquote G word. A couple days later, he, he, he reintroduced. On Azerbaijan, yeah, yeah he, he he will continue to export military goods to Azerbaijan. Yeah, so, yeah exactly. Not sanctions. Again, yeah. it's it's hot air. Even during the war, it was hot air. The United States didn't get involved. Didn't try to stop it in any serious way. Yeah, they you know hosted talks or whatever, but that's not good enough anymore. Hosting talks is no longer good enough. This is. This is not even a frozen comma. This is like raging on fire right now. It's not frozen. And so it's not good enough to host talks, right? Yeah. No, you know, no uh, American, you know, battleships showed up anywhere near Armenia or Azerbaijan. No, you know, uh, serious commitments were made and no one but one can no one in the right mind should expect that one can argue that that because it was the trump administration which was more ambivalent right then and honestly i don't want the united states and its nasty imperialistic war machine anywhere near armenia or azerbaijan i don't want it there anyway if we think Russia's bad man i don't i don't want the american military industrial complex there okay what awaits us what awaits us if that happens is libya what awaits us is iraq what awaits us is syria and i don't want any of that we're very we're we're a very small people and we're a very small country and we have a very small landmass. i doubt that anything like libya or iraq could happen to armenia i highly doubt it yeah and I and I doubt the United States, because of some of those very reasons, would be that interested to do anything in Armenia, you know, remotely like that. Anyway, United States is not that interested. I I don't understand why Armenians keep pinning their hopes on the U.S. They're not interested. They weren't interested in 1919 when a mandate for Armenia was to be created through the League of Nations, and they're still not interested a hundred years later. <laughs> They're not interested. Russia's interested, at least. You know that Russians call. You know when we when we uh, call them, they answer. Russians answer our calls, but I, I so here's what I gotta say. Um, I think that for the United States to even say the G word, a small gesture. Considering the United States' diplomacy, like level of diplomacy and how much thought goes into every single word that our politicians speak, especially the president, um, that there's <laughs> definitely something going on there. And of course, some of it is to spite Turkey, and the United States has been trying to spite Turkey for a while now, since 2016, right? Hello? Yeah, I'm listening. Go ahead. Oh. So, but I don't think that it's random. Like, I don't think that somebody could just make a gaffe and say that, oh, genocide, and then take it back. No, they're they're trying to 
posture themselves and maneuver things. But you said it well. It's not about Armenia at all. It's about the United States and Turkey. So when it's we're not, speaking, it's not. It's not not about Armenia at all. Of course, it's ar- about Armenia too as part of it. But yeah, a lot of it is Turkey, and a lot of it is Russia, and a lot of it is all these other countries that United States wants to have. I mean, there's there's wars on other fronts. There's stuff going on in Syria, like you said, in Libya. There's the Arab Spring that we're still trying to grapple with. Um, and United States has a part in all of this stuff. So, yeah, Armenia Ar- Armenia might have a might have some bandwidth there too. <laughs> Especially, especially mm-hmm. if United States has a contingency plan to divest its interests from Turkey, which I think might be very possible if they do get Georgia and Greece and Bulgaria and all these other countries in the Black Sea region are aligned. Uh, then I think that they'll have less and less of a need for, for Turkey, which might be a problem for Erdogan. I think the U.S and Turkish military industrial complexes are way too entrenched to seriously talk about disengagement anytime soon. Even even in these times of, you know, constantly poking each other in the eye, I mean, yeah. just it's too entrenched already. There isn't they're not going to be disengaging anything. We're talking but about. Even, do you notice though? Even then, when we're talking about this, when I'm trying to make the argument that U.S. might be trying to divest from Turkey, and you're trying to make the argument that U.S. won't divest from Turkey, in both cases, the assumption is that Armenia is polarized against Turkey. Again, I don't. I, I'm in in the politics of Armenia, right? We're, we're speaking of the elections now. What I'm saying is Turkey at this moment is not really a, a factor. It's not, it's, there is no choice to be made about Turkey. It's, it's already done for right at the moment, you know? Uh-huh. So I don't yeah. think Turkey right now is a, a, a specific so, issue about, you know, what policies to pursue. And, and and also including all of all of us who were pro dialogue with Turkey and very liberal towards Turkey and we even get hated on by the Dashnaks and this and that. Even 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 us right now, we're very lukewarm if if not ambivalent towards Turkey because of the bad taste in our mouths because of forty four day war. Correct. Yeah. So when it comes to Pashinyan and Pashinyan supporters there just isn't much to consider about Turkey. I don't think there, at this moment at least, there is a segment of his constituency that is thinking about, you know, future projects and border openings with Turkey. Uh, yeah. True, true. Well, do you think that that was part of, like, Pashinyan's diplomatic failure, the fact that we completely... Because of this war, we lost any chance of like reconciliation with Turkey because our people are not going to want it anymore. Well, there's so many failures of Pashinyan when it comes to the war. Uh, just s- simply just driving us into the war is enough. There's going to be numerous repercussions when that happens. Um, when you drive a country towards war, there's going to be all kinds of repercussions. It's going to harm projects and prospects in many directions 
And yes, Turkey is one of them. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So there's some people that I've talked to who are thinking that this was all done intentionally, and I don't know whose intentions it was, but to make Armenian and Russian um, interests even more entrenched. Because this whole war resulted in, I mean, if you think about the best alternative to this war, we could have had a good peace deal with both Azerbaijan and Turkey, and we could have opened up trade with no hard feelings, right? We could have easily signed away those five plus two territories, and we could have come up with a peace deal about Karabakh, right? And we would have, in that case, we would have opened up trade relations with both Azerbaijan and Turkey without any hard feelings. Now, the way that this has come, come out to be, the, the, the way that this manifested itself, it ended up being a war where a lot of people died and we lost a lot more territory than we would have lost had we signed to these agreements. And on top of that, we hate Azerbaijan and Turkey now. Thank you very much, Mr. Nikol Pashinyan. So you're saying all of this was done intentionally to drive Armenia towards Russia. Could have been, you, could have been, could have made, uh, been done to make us even more entrenched. I don't yeah. believe that for one second. Let me tell you why. Huh. If it was a government implementing this, you know, this policy or direction or whatever, um, I, I could entertain that idea. However, this was, this was how the Armenian population felt everybody everybody wanted it that way nobody wanted to come to terms with azerbaijan no one wanted to give away any territory no one wanted to uh, allow azerbaijani refugees to return that was the mood that was the state of the armenian people in mass so i don't think cognitive could... dissonance when people don't even when cognitive dissonance when most of the population doesn't even realize that we've already compromised the way most of this territory. Sure. That we've that... already agreed in principle that we're going to give it back and that we're going to resettle sure. all of the displaced people, uh, all the IDPs internally the displaced populations. We've already sure. agreed to all those verbally in principle. No, you and I agree on this. You know that we've spoken about it numerous times, but what I'm saying is <clears throat> that's just evidence there that uh -huh. no one planned this war to drive Armenia towards Russia. The Armenian people went head first into this war because of some of those positions we just described right now. Because we had a leader who said that I do want to make concessions and I do want to make peace. And the people started complaining that he's going to give away Garabagh. And he said, you want like a no-incher? I'll be that no-incher for you. So he became the no-incher. And that's what the people wanted. And everybody's like, Hachteluink, Hachteluink, we're going to That's win, exactly win. right. As, as a you know, populist leader, they feed into what people want, what people are considering the popular position at the moment. So, yes, exactly. That is the popular position. The popular position in Armenia is we're not going to give one inch of soil back. That was the popular position. And he adopted it. He adopted that position.
So who's to blame? Well, sure, the leader is to blame, you know, a good part of it. But also the people who found that position desirable and popular for him to go ahead and adopt and try to use for his political gain. Everybody yeah. who was who was thinking along those lines, the Armenians who were saying, not one inch, we're not going to give a damn thing to them. You know, we won fair and square and it's already over. All those people, all those people are at fault and they they have no, no place to speak. And I definitely won't be entertaining any ideas about all of this being planned to bring Armenia and Russia together. When I saw with my own eyes the Armenian people going into this war, like just dragging themselves into it. But you think you think you think Russian politics is that like you don't think that they're that like. If 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 this was all part of Russia's end game, how much influence do you think Russia would have had? Not just over the the results and how it communicates with Turkey and how it does its diplomacy with Azerbaijan and whatever. How much influence do you think Russia has, even on the media in Armenia, where half of the media, right, is like Russian-owned enterprises, right? So what's the question about that? I'm, I'm saying that <clears throat> you don't think that Russia has the ability to actually influence Armenia in such a way? Russia um, doesn't, doesn't need to do that, number one. Russia doesn't need to do that. Armenia is in, you know, in the throngs of Russia and it's going to be um, for, for decades. It's, it's dependent on Russia and it's going to be for decades. And besides that, from what I learned from this war, mm -hmm. it's actually in the interest of Russia not to have, you know, not to have a war, not to have a, a region of chaos, but to have a region of stability to itself. Russia's interest is that. Russia wants that. Why? Because that is actually more conducive to its goals than having a, a region of war. Then so, it can then it can uh -huh. implement trade southwards towards Iran, towards the Persian Gulf, in that direction, which it was very interested in doing. I think that uh, what you mentioned is like, from my point of view, is part of what I think consider Russia's end game is that because of this, now Russia has this railway, which is the biggest point of that November 11th agreement, uh, November 9th agreement, sorry. Uh, to build uh, uh, this this uh, this this trade line that goes to both Iran and Turkey, I mean, who cares about so, Azerbaijan and Armenia? So here's the thing, though: that trade line already exists. <laughs> Those rail links already exist. The project is already underway. The, doesn't even mm -hmm. need to be underway because, as I said, the rail line already exists. Uh, trade is already being conducted from Russia through Azerbaijan to Iran. That's already being done. So there is nothing that was planned or, or, or going to be implemented that this war made more likely to happen. On the contrary, it's in Russia's interest to keep that which is already there and the war compromises that. The war destroys those existing rail links and existing projects that go through you know, Azerbaijan to reach Iran. That's my point. It's in Russia's interest so? to have peace in the region. 
That's the beauty of it. If Armenia was smart, they would, you know, tap into that. It's in Russia's interest. Russia got involved to stop the war because it is in its interest to do so. It is in its interest to not have full, you know, chaos and a refugee crisis at its southern border. So you would agree with me on this one thing, that Russian interests and Turkish interests for now are aligned. In some ways, I don't think Turkey is seeking uh, regional stability, although it claims it is, although it speaks in the language of, that it is. It's not engaging with Armenia whatsoever. So it, it can't speak of um, having an interest in stabilizing the region. It itself is destabilizing the region with the way it treats Armenia. So um, I don't think it's aligned in that way. Certain things align, sure. And that's why we get, you know, the, the the agreements between Russia and Turkey that we do. But I I I want to set apart Russia and say specifically, Russia has an interest in a peaceful, stable, open, cooperative region to its south. That's and you know what, Arthur, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. And and I would think that Russia would want to be in control of that region. Um, but who's in control of that region? And of course, Russia is the most situated and uh, historically the best, the most in like that's, in that's mind. exactly right. That's what I would say to you. I would say to you, Russia doesn't need to try to control the region. It already has ingrained control uh, there, and so I don't think it's trying to get any more control. It's trying to um, gain from the region through trade, through transportation, through projects, uh, by having, as I said, a stable, peaceful, normalized, and open region to itself. That's my point. It's not about control, I don't think. Russia doesn't need to control anything else. Whatever it already controls is enough for it. Actually, it doesn't want to engage anymore, right? It doesn't want to get you know, further involved and, and, and stick its nose further deeper into that region than it already did, um, especially after that November 9th agreement. It, it doesn't interest it to do that. What interests it is to have a, a, a useful region to itself. And the only way it could be useful is for peace, not for war. So I, I wouldn't entertain anyone who would say that the war was uh, productive for Russia. It drove Armenia towards... It, Armenia is already in Russia's lap. Drive it where? Further in where? Um, well, yeah. but No, no, no. But yeah, exactly, but exactly that, though. I mean, if Armenia could have found its way out of this war by, through, through compromise through the Minsk group, right? And if we gave up regions... I mean, forget Armenian national populism. Just if Armenia, just like if, 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 if I was Armenia or if you were Armenia and I was Russia and somebody else like Bolos was Minsk group. And if we're sitting here and we're making compromises, the most rational compromise we could have made was given up on these five to uh, five plus two territories, gotten uh, autonomy for Karabakh. Signed the thing off. We wouldn't have given up Shushi, by the way. What makes right? you think? And then the Ar- we we would have had open borders with both sides. Suddenly, what makes have- what makes you think Armenian people are rational people? 
<laughs> You're speaking as though Armenian people were thinking rationally about expanding trade and and having open borders like you and I are. Most I would Armenian hope people that are, at least our our leaders were thinking that way. I hope at least. But the our, leaders are beholden to what the population feels and thinks, and the majority of the population was not interested in that. Are they beholden to the population, or are they beholden to the colonial powers? Sometimes the population is stupid enough that they are in line with what the colonial powers want. Yeah. That happens. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, not because the colonial powers set it up that way, but because the people are foolish enough to actually go that way themselves with their own. Sure. You know. Sure. And for me, it doesn't matter what the because is. Yeah. It's just the fact is yeah, that it, it, the population a lot of times correlates <laughs> with what yeah. the colonial. Oh, the, the overarching whether whether powers. the spider caught you or you walked into its web, nonetheless, exactly. You're, get, you're, you're getting fucked. eaten, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes, that's that's no, but that but that's what I mean, though. You you were saying that the war could have been orchestrated to drive Armenia towards Russia. And I'm telling you, it couldn't have been that. It couldn't have been that for the reasons I described. Armenia is already there with Russia, number one. And number two, it's not in Russia's interests. Russia's interests are different than having a war like that for power or control reasons, as you described. Well, it, it could be in Russia's in interest to prove something. And maybe maybe they they were able to successfully prove something. I mean, I I, I, I still even get, so I still get even what, so I wouldn't was that was in their interest. I wouldn't say Russia orchestrated an entire war to prove something, as you said. Russia I, takes advantage I, of actually, situations I'm not, that present unlike, themselves. Unlike conspiracy theorists, I am not going to go as far as to say who who orchestrated it it could have been anyway it could have been george soros or it could have been bill gates orchestrating it right i don't care <laughs> the fact is the fact is that the confluence of all these forces worked in a certain direction and the direction that it worked towards was the fact that now russia is more interested in armenian politics than ever russia gets to build build a railway that connects it to Iran and to Turkey and whatever. Yeah, the railway. Yes. the railway is already there, as I said. It's already there. <laughs> the dysfunctional one? No, no. There's a railway that goes from Russia to Baku and then from Baku to Iran, if I'm not mistaken. It's it's already uh, participating in projects like that. It they already signed agreements with Azerbaijan and Iran for those projects. There is nothing new that has come to the table because of the war, in terms of that specifically. Um, and and again, why does it always have to be some kind of a master plan? That's the conspiratorial mindset. Why does it have to be a master plan? People stumble into wars. Nations stumble into wars. Because of their foolishness, they stumble into wars. Things escalate. That's how it usually happens. Escalations. And that's exactly what happened with Armenia and Azerbaijan. Little escalations that, you know, grew and grew and became a raging fire. It doesn't have to oh. be some kind of orchestrated effort by Russia to play a game of chess. 
And you don't think Russia is playing a game of chess? It's taking advantage of an opportunity that presented itself. It's playing the chess game after the war, not the before the war. The chessboard was laid out after the war. <laughs> the chessboard was not out before the war. Uh, yeah. 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 Now, it, I mean, yes. It's really, now it's, 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 it's making its moves and it's using, you know, the, the war as an opportunity. One of the things we saw for sure, as an example, you mentioned it, the agreements with Turkey, right? Russia was, was fully engaged in the issues of Syria. But the Gharaba War now actually became a, a, a good moment for it to um, try out some agreements with Turkey that it could potentially implement in Syria. It was already speaking about exporting the model of having you know, a joint military center and things like that, that they were uh, agreeing with each other on. Uh, I mean, Russia and Turkey were agreeing with each other to build in Gharabagh, in you know, Ardham region or whatever. Um, that would have been uh, easy to implement in Syria and kind of solve their differences and issues over there. So, yes, Russia is using the war at this point now that it's presented itself. Is using the war for various projects in the future, but there is nothing to indicate that the war began or you know was uh, implemented for Russia to do that in the first place. The opportunity presented itself. Russia's taking advantage. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I I could I could agree with that. I could agree with that. But I'm just, um, I mean, I'm unlike, unlike a conspiracy theorist, I could say that, like, I, I do, I do believe that a bunch of uh, forces added up, aggregated together, can be in the confluence of, of one direction or another, and it just happens to be that this is the direction that things are going. We're we're going to be more interested in Russian politics. We are. We have. There's there's no way out of that. Just like you said. Um, Russia is going to have better relations with Iran, Azerbaijan, and Turkey. There's, there's no doubt about that. Uh, there is a world power grab going on between all of these different superpowers, and we don't know how that's going to pan out, but for, for now, it seems like Russia has control over the Caucasus. I wonder what percentage of Pashinya supporters were anti-Russia. or um, when, when I listened to the debates, which were mostly... Um, Pro Pashinya, I mean, like the Lusavur uh, Hayastan, like all of these different parties who were, you know, that they're going to be in an alliance with Pashinyan's uh, group now that they're in parliament, right? All of them seem to be sound of the same thing, and it was like all of moving away from Russian influence, and that seemed to be a common theme. Yeah, well, I, I don't, I still don't know if I see all of that at the moment. I don't think there is that much of an alternative right now to Russia. Um, the people like Arapapian that you're saying are who are <laughs> advocating for replacing Russia with the United States are just ridiculous, I think. They're silly. I would use that word. Very silly to even think that. And they're asking for more destruction if it were to ever happen, which I don't think it will because the United States is not interested. But if it were to get interested in our region... We would have a region of much more destruction than what we already had because we have seen what the United States leaves in its wake 
when it gets involved in regions across the world for its military, for its political, and for its, you know, strategic gains and, and economic gains. So we, I don't want any of that. I don't want the American empire in our region. The Russian empire is already here. We know how to work with it. We'll work around it. We'll do our best, try to, you know, minimize its harmful effects. We don't need the American empire coming in and trying to compete with the Russian empire in our region. But since the world is not bipolar anymore, as it was back in the 1960s, I don't think it's the American empire versus the Russian empire. I think it's a very delicate, very delicate balance between all these, all these different growing emanating superpowers. And if, if you're smart, like Erdogan, you can find a way to balance all of them, which we need to do as a very small, very tiny country. If we don't want to be swallowed by one side or the other. We were already doing that. We, we, were, we were very big on the, the balanced diplomacy. Remember, Georgia was going full on pro-EU-US. Um, uh, Azerbaijan, I guess, was trying to balance like we were. But we were, we were the balance. Uh, we were on the balance side as well. We were saying Russia and EU and everybody can be balanced as, as best as possible. We were already doing that, so what 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 will we do different? We we were we were and still are engaging with China, right? There's a lot of uh, high level contacts and talks with Since China. LTP days. Um, Iran, you already know we were very friendly. Yeah. So where where are we missing out on? You think what poll are we not engaging in that you think we should engage? Yeah. You've engaged them all. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. We have to, I just, I would trust in a very, like, very technically capable team to, to, to do all of this. Because this re requires rocket science worth of diplomacy. It does. It, it, it's just, we don't need, you know what I mean? And yeah. Yeah, that's, 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 you're absolutely right. And that's why, you know, I was kind of favorable to Ter Pedrosian. He's the only rocket scientist in the bunch, it seems like. The only one who can perform this delicate surgery, or at least is is giving us a plan of how to perform this surgery. Because everybody else is just, you know, playing stupid games of duel on, on, a, on the stage and just parading around like fools. Uh, it's, it's funny how, like, Somebody, uh, somebody like the uh, LTP, who's very smart and very well informed and very skilled and whatever, is going to be the most, uh, the least popular opinion among among the population. So at this point, we're going to leave it here and uh, we'll continue the conversation. But it was a pleasure to have you, uh, Moses, and um, hope to speak to you again on these topics. Arthur John, uh, no matter what the platform is, no matter what the medium is. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, sir. You're, you're too kind. You're way too <laughs> kind. <laughs> All right.